Well, thank you this week for the opportunity and the privilege to have been able to open God's Word with you. Uh, this is a lot of fun. Um, I, uh, camp is a special place, amen? And it's been neat to see what God has done this week, as well as what He's done in my life at camp over the years. And uh, so it's been a great privilege. Thank you for everyone who said uh, very kind and encouraging things. And then also for those of you who have said that you're praying for my uncle, uh, I tried to text with them this morning. I, I didn't hear anything, but they should be in surgery uh, this morning. So uh, thank you for your prayers in that. And if you would uh, open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we come before the Lord and wrap up our study on fear for this week. Father, thank you for all you do in our lives. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you that you are a God who tells us not to fear by pointing to yourself as the solution. God, as we talk today about probably one of the greatest fears, God, I pray that you would give me the words to say, that you would take my words and apply them to uh, our hearts far more than I could, that through your Spirit you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive, God, that we would take in this message and that it would transform the way we do life. Thank you, above all, for Jesus. As we talk about the fear of death this morning, God, Jesus is our only hope. We can't be good enough to be ready for death. But Jesus was good for us. Help us to put our trust in him. It's in his name, in your spirit we pray, amen. While we are wrapping up our series, Do Not Fear, we've been looking at finding hope in what scares us most. Uh, our big idea, say it with me, is we fear what we fear because we're afraid of losing what we love. Your fear always says something about what you love, about what you value, and whenever I am afraid and it's stopping me from doing what God is calling me to do, I know that there's, because, there's something competing for my love of God in my heart. That there's something I'm loving more than I'm loving doing what God has called me to do or being what God has called me to be. And we follow this up with the idea that, say it with me, what we love and how much we love it determines what we fear and how much we fear it. It's, again, the reason that I fear losing my kid in a way I don't fear losing a quarter. Why? Because one is more important to me than the other. And how much I love something determines how afraid I am of losing it. And so when I find these fears building in my life, I need to look at my heart and go, okay, what is it that I'm loving more than I'm loving being who God has called me to be and doing what God has called me to do? Now, uh, Pastor Josh made a comment last night that uh, when it came to Philippians 3, that he could essentially just re-preach what I said uh, uh, earlier. Well, that's what I'm going to do today. Uh, Pastor Josh preached on facing the fear of death, and he did a wonderful job and gave me an existential crisis this week of, uh, okay, do I just go ahead with what I was going to do, or do I do something completely different? And uh, somebody must be here today that God wanted you to hear you're going to die. Because I'm doing it again. Because as a pastor, one of my roles is to comfort those who are in the last stages of life. I've had the privilege of being in the room on many occasions when people die. 
when people from our church have died, when people from the community. Actually, one of the greatest outreaches that I had at my previous church was uh, being there when people died. I I had a reputation in the community as somebody that was uh, encouraging to them. So they'd call me and say, hey, would you come? So-and-so is going to die, and we'd like you there. So I'm there, and that was one of the greatest ways I was able to impact people is just by praying with them uh, when their loved one is dying, praying with the loved ones, sharing the gospel with them. Uh, and it was, a, it was in the midst of tragedy. It was a sweet time. But you know what I've noticed is uh, though Christians and non-Christians can approach death differently, I have noticed one thing that's common to everyone, whether you're a Christian or not. Everyone dies. doesn't matter if you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you will die. You remember the line, uh, for those of you who are fans of the movie, What About Bob? When the young boy says, I am going to die. There's no escaping it. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of how long. He's not wrong. (laughs) We're going to die. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, God has appointed it unto man to die. That is our destiny. As a result of living in a world cursed by sin, we are going to die. Our bodies will not live uh, function forever. There's going to be an end point. Rich or poor, you're going to die. Liked or hated, you're going to die. Healthy or unhealthy, you're going to die. Famous or unknown, you're going to die. Democrat or Republican, you're going to die. Plexus or essential oils, you're going to die. It's going to happen. Psalm 55, verses 4 through 5, we read, David says, My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. This is David talking. David was God's man. He fought Goliath, became king of Israel, wrote a ton of Bible verses, and yet even he feared death. There is a great fear that comes with death. That's why so many horror movies and thrillers involve death. That's why there are trillions of dollars to be made in healthcare at the top, because people will do anything to save their life. That is why people will often turn to religion. That is why we live in dread of getting sick, being attacked, or growing old. Why? Because we don't want to die. We're afraid of when it happens. There's a lot of reasons people fear death, too. It could be not knowing what comes next. It could be fearing the pain that could come with it. I hear all the time, I don't mind being dead. It's the dying I don't want. It could be the fear of missing our loved ones or knowing they will miss us, hopefully. It could be the fear of standing before God and having not lived our lives biblically. But when it really comes down to it, I think what everyone is afraid of when it comes to death is that the fear of death is rooted in the fear of finality. It's final. The fear of death is rooted in uh, the fear of finality. Why? Because once death comes, you don't get a do-over. Remember, uh, for those of you who are big into, you know, Super Mario, I loved Super Mario as a kid. My, my first gaming system was the Super Nintendo system, and it came with three Mario games in one. I know. And I got it on a Christmas morning. I was seven years old, and I just thought this was the greatest thing ever. And what was great is, 
if Mario tries to jump over a ledge and he misses, he goes down and you get two more lives. Unless you've been finding those little green mushrooms and then you get the one-ups and you get more lives. You don't ever have to die. And even if you do, you just start the game over. You know, you turn it off and turn it back on and if it doesn't work, you take the cartridge out and right? And you, you put it back in and then you just get to try again. We wish life was like that, but it's not. We don't believe in reincarnation, that if you didn't get it right the first time, you can come back as, you know, something else and try it again. God says it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. Even in the way we talk about death, we refuse to talk about its finality. We use phrases like passed on, promoted to glory, right? Departed from the, for the great beyond. And many of these phrases that we use, we love to emphasize the fact that we're going on and that death is not the end for our existence, but death is the end of this life. And we don't get to try again. All attempts to phrase death so it doesn't sound so final. Others, on the other hand, embrace death's finality, but have no hope. W.B. Provine, Bill Provine, uh, was an evolutionary biologist and when asked his views about life after death, this is what he said. Let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And I must say, these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposeful forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to be dead. That's all. That's going to be the end of me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. You don't see those on Hallmark cards too often, do you? But he's going, look, we just got to face the facts. There's nothing after death. It's going to be final, so get the most out of life you can now. So on the one hand, we have this perspective that says, I never want to die, and I'm scared to ever die. And the other says, well, you're going to die, so just get as much as you possibly can now, because that's going to be the end of it. And yet we find David, in Psalm 23, verses 1 through 6, says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, feeds, or he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me, he says. Your rod... And your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Probably the most famous verse in this group of verses is when he says, For even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. There were times that David faced death. And yeah, he was afraid at times, but he had a greater trust in God in the midst of his uh, possible death or even uh, later on in his life and his impending death. Though David was human and he had human fears, he also had a confidence that helped him move forward in spite of this fear. Look, it's not wrong to look at death and go, man, I'm, I'm a little nervous of what that's going to be like. Like, I, I wonder how it's going to happen. I wonder, I wonder how my life is going to end. Is it going to end by an accident? Am I going to get sick? Is it going to end because I didn't look both ways? 
Is it going to end because somebody takes my life? Like, how's it going to happen? Is it going to hurt? What's it going to be like those first moments when I open my eyes and there's Jesus? Like, what, what is that going to be like? The Bible tells us that we don't get our new bodies until Jesus comes back. What's it going to be like to be a disembodied soul without, I don't, I don't know what that's going to be like. I have nothing in my experience to compare that to. I'm, I'm nervous about what that looks like. But that's different than being so overwhelmed with fear that I can't face death with hope. Death is going to come, so we need to face our fear of death with confidence, but how do we do that? And I just want to give two simple points this morning. And the first one is, the only way to face death with confidence is, first of all, to know where you're going. To know where you're going. One of my passages that I talk about all the time with non-Christians is 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. For those who say, you know, I, I, I get to heaven by being a good person or by my works, by, as Pastor Josh talked about last night, my self-righteousness, my resume gets me to heaven. For those who say that, they often say, I, I say, well, how do, do you know you're going to be there? Well, no, I hope I am. You know, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure. What does 1 John 5.13 say we can do? We can know. We can have certainty of where we're going to spend eternity. It doesn't have to be a guessing game. You realize for all other world religions, it's a guessing game how it's going to end for you? In Islam, you don't know if you've done enough good things. And even if you keep all the pillars of Islam, one of the tenets is that Allah is so wholly other that he is not uh, obligated to give you entrance to heaven even if you kept the law perfectly. What's interesting is there's a, there's a passage in, um, in the Quran. Uh, I, I can't remember which, sir, I mean, which chapter it is. But Allah gets mad at the Jewish people for calling him good. Because he says, what if I don't want to be good? You're putting me in a box. In Allah's, uh, in, in the theology of Allah, he can be good, but it's not intrinsic to who he is. You have no idea, even if you cross every T and dot every I, if you're going to make it in. You could get there and he just goes, I don't like you. And you're done. In the Jewish model, in this whole idea of, of righteousness derived from the law, the question is, how much? Like, this test, is it 100%? Is it 90%? Is it 80 Like, what's a passing grade? And what's interesting is every person defines that differently, right? Well, I, I think it's, I think, you know, as long as public schools, it's what, a 69 is a passing, or is a 70 is a passing grade? What is it? I don't even know. It's been a while. But whatever it is, you know, I think that's a pretty good standard. No, no, no. You got to be better than that. You know, as long as, you know, 80, 90%, you know, not perfect, but... You, and each one is this unknown standard that we have to try to guess at, and you never have confidence. And what kind of a God wants you to go through life with no confidence that he loves you or that he knows you? The God of the Bible says you can know that you have a relationship with him, that he loves you, and that you can spend eternity with him. He doesn't leave it up to chance. He doesn't leave it up to your standard versus your standard. He says, my standard 
is holiness. You see, number one, everyone will spend eternity somewhere. It's not a question of where, if you will live forever, it's a question of where you will live forever. Everyone will spend eternity somewhere, but we deserve hell. Why? Because God is holy and we are not. We understand this, Romans 3, 23, for uh, all have what? Sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6, 23 that we've already looked at, for the wages of sin is death. We deserve hell. You say, well, that's awfully harsh. Well, not really. What is sin? Sin is anything that doesn't mirror the nature and character of God. Why is lying wrong? Lying is wrong because God is truthful. Why is stealing wrong? Stealing is wrong because God is generous. Why is adultery wrong? Adultery is wrong because God is faithful. Why is murder wrong? Murder is wrong because it attacks somebody made in the image of God. Sin is anything that doesn't mirror the nature and character of God. It is the standard of who God is. Anything not that, from the Greek word hamartia, means to miss the mark, is sin. But for justice to exist, there must be accountability. Here's the question. Should Hitler, for killing six million Jews and who knows how many Christians and others, should Hitler have to face accountability for what he did? And I've never met a person who goes, nah, you know, is morally neutral. They go, yeah, absolutely. And I say, why? Because what he did was atrocious. I said, according to what standard? Well, you know, we, just, we all know it. Of course we all know it because we're made in the image of God and we know that there's such a thing as right, such a thing as wrong. But if there is such a thing as right and wrong because we're made in the image of God, then that means what I do is wrong too. And if God is to be just, he doesn't pick and choose whose sin he's going to punish. God hates capital sin. And sin is treason against the one who spoke Adam's into existence and made us from the dust. For justice to exist, there must be accountability. I want you to imagine somebody has taken the life of one of your family members, and they're standing before the judge, and he says, but judge, I'm really sorry. And the judge says, well, as long as you're sorry, you can go. How would you feel? Is that justice? You go, no, I'm glad you're sorry. You should be sorry. That's not justice. What if the person came and said, yeah, but look at all the people I didn't kill? You go, kudos, not justice. You say, but I'm never going to kill anyone else again. Good, you won't, especially if you're in prison. That's not justice. Justice is you do the crime, you do the time. For justice to exist, there must be accountability. And for us to say, God, yeah, but I wish I hadn't done it. Yeah, I bet you do. For, for us to say, but God, look at all the good things I've done. Yeah, worthless. It doesn't matter how many, quote, unquote, good things you've done. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before him. That's the idea of uh, uh, God offering you this gift of salvation and you ripping off your Band-Aid to pay for it. It doesn't matter what you try to offer God. The fact is we stand guilty and deserve justice. But while we deserve hell, we can spend eternity with Christ. We already read Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you haven't done so already, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is one of the most important texts of God's Word. It has been huge in my life, and I want to walk through this together this morning. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, the Apostle Paul, writing to this messed up church at Corinth, I always laugh when there's, I drive through Des Moines and there's a Corinthian Baptist Church. I'm like, why do you want to be known that way? I, I don't understand that. 1 Corinthians 15.1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you. Now I want you to notice what Paul's saying here. What I'm about to tell you is the gospel that saves. The words that are about to come out of my mouth are your hope for eternal life. But I do apologetics, and so I can't help but address something here. The reason this is such an important text, if you look at verses 1 through 2, it says, Now I made known to you, brethren, when did he do that? When he was there with them in Corinth. And we know when he was there in Corinth because it's corroborated by evidence in the book of Acts. We're looking at maybe 20 years after the event of the crucifixion itself that he was there in Corinth. What's interesting is modern scholarship tells us that the uh, core gospel message was a belief that developed uh, decades and decades and decades later through oral tradition, through uh, mixing of pagan elements, whatever it may be, and that really this full-fledged Christian belief that Jesus was the divine Son of God who died for our sins and rose again was a very, very late development with lots of fabrication that's involved. But we know from when Paul was in Corinth that the message he's about to say, he was preaching there within two decades. But it gets even better. I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says in verse 3, for I delivered to you, back when I was there, as of, first as of first importance, what I, what? Also received. He said, I just told you what I received. When did Paul receive this? When he's there, he corroborates this message with Peter and James in a Jerusalem meeting within three years. Within three years of the event of the resurrection itself. This is not an embellished account that developed decades or a century later. This is the core gospel that has been preached since the beginning. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose again on the third day. I gotta, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm appalled at our Baptist churches. When I look at teens who grew up in churches, when I look at adults, when I teach an adult Sunday school class, it doesn't matter which church I'm at. And I ask people, okay, what's the gospel? Just quick, shoot it out. 
and I get deer in the headlight looks. If you can't summarize the gospel, I'm going to make a really harsh statement, but if you can't tell me what the gospel is, then you can't be a Christian. If you don't know the gospel, you can't believe the gospel. If you are looking at me and going, I, I couldn't define what the gospel is, then you need to seriously address your soul before the end of the day. If you're looking, I have no idea, that I've, I've never heard of this gospel or that Jesus died for me and, and rose again. I don't, I don't know anything about this. You are missing it and your soul is in danger. If, I don't care if you grew up in church. I hear people say, what is the gospel? Um, the Bible. Well, the Bible tells us about the gospel. What is the gospel? The, the church. Well, the church is an outworking of the gospel, but what is the gospel? Yeah, I, I got nothing. If you don't know the gospel, you don't know God because the gospel is the means to know God. But we find this beautiful summary here that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Rather than me having to die for my sin, this principle, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, that principle is still in effect. But the question is, who's going to die that death? And instead of me having to die that death, Jesus died it for me. He took the guilt of my sin, and God credited to him the guilt of all my sin, and treated him as guilty of my iniquity. And the book of Romans tells me that when Jesus died, I died in God's record books. The penalty for my sin was dead. Colossians chapter 2 says that he took it away, having nailed it to the cross. And when Jesus rose, I rose to walk in newness of life. You know, the word gospel comes from the Greek word euangelion, meaning good news. The word for preach means to preach good news. The gospel is good news. It's not good advice. One of my favorite illustrations is the difference between good news and good advice. Here's good advice. If you have a major test coming up, study real hard, work real hard, and hopefully you'll pass. That's, that's good advice. Good news is the teacher took the test for you. That's the difference. That's great news. And I got 100%. Good advice. Yeah, you should probably just, you know, try. Good news. Jesus did it for you. And yet, there are many who say, I don't believe it. I really don't believe it. It's too good to be true that somebody died for me or that he rose again. And yet we find in verse 19, this principle that Paul gives, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be what? Pitied. Paul's point is now, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then you are still dead in your sins. Because anyone can claim that they died for you. The only way we know it worked is that he rose from the dead. And Paul's whole point is, look, if Jesus is still rotting in a tomb somewhere, go golf on Sundays. Go do anything else. This whole church thing, it's a nice social club, but that's all it is, and it's no different than uh, joining your local Kiwanis or joining your local uh, uh, whatever. 
Go do whatever else you want. We are of all men most to be pitied because we believe in a resurrected Savior if Jesus has not risen from the dead. But what does he say? But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. The idea of first fruits, what is that idea? It's the idea of after your crops have grown and you go and you take a first sampling to know what the rest of the crops are going to be like. That's what Jesus' resurrection is for us. He's the first fruits. He's that which shows what the rest is going to be when it comes. Jesus rose from the dead, showing what it's going to be like when we rise from the dead. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those of that which is to come. And then we see this amazing text in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57. In which we read, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed." For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on in the imperishable, and this mortal will put on the immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. His point is, look, you're not going to get to heaven without passing through this change. Whether it's because Jesus has come back in the rapture or because I've died. That's the only two ways I'm getting there. And he says, look, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God through flesh and blood. No. You have to put on immortality. And when that comes, yes, We understand that now death is still around, but death is not the victor. It's still around, but it can't harm us as Christians. Again, one of my favorite illustrations. um, This is going to be very apt considering our our, uh, act of courage with bee killing yesterday. Um, A dad and his son were driving in the car, and a bee was in the vehicle, and it's swarming around, and this little child sees the, and just freaks out, Dad, Dad, it's going to get me, it's going to get me. And the dad reaches out and grabs the bee. The son's, oh. Well, a couple minutes later, he sees that same bee buzzing around. Dad, it's going to get me. And the dad says, no, it won't, son, because the sting is here in my hand. It may still be around, but it can't hurt us anymore because we know Christ. It's there. And death, Scripture still says death is an enemy. But it's an enemy that Jesus has given us the victory over. When he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. And to walk in newness of life, to possess eternal life, and to look forward to that life with Christ forever. And so we see his words in John 14, 3-6. through 6, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be, and you know the way where I am going. And I I love Thomas, because Thomas says everything I'm thinking. And he says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? He's like, you know where I'm going. Thomas like, no, we don't. 
What do you mean? Where are you going? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, when you know where you are going, the journey is tolerable. But when you have no idea where you're going, man, it's excruciating. When you don't know how you're going to get there or when you're going to get there or what's going to be there, man, it is it's hard. But when you know where you're going, you can endure. I don't know if you've ever taken a long trip. We, we've, I mentioned uh, uh, earlier in the week that we went to London and Paris several years ago, and then we had the privilege to go to Israel uh, a couple years after that. Uh, I don't like, as my ADD mind, I don't like long sit-there flights. I, I am the worst person. I am that guy that you sit next to that just will not stop talking because I want to get my mind off of this flight is taking forever. But I knew where I was going. Why did I get on the plane when I knew I'm not going to do well with an eight-and-a-half-hour flight? And you're not going to do well sitting next to me on an eight-and-a-half-hour flight. So why do I do it? Because the destiny is worth the trip. I know where I'm going, so I endure. Because where I'm going is a wonderful place where the king is waiting. And there's no more suffering, and no more pain, and no more sin. One of my favorite hymns, The Solid Rock. And I love the fourth verse. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. I love that verse because there will be a day when dressed in his righteousness alone, I will stand faultless and there will never again be a point where I stand before God in prayer and say, God, I did it again. I will never sin again. There will never again be that sense of I love you, I want to follow you, but I'm experiencing my own human and sinful frailty in doing so. God, please forgive me and help me to keep moving forward. That prayer will never be uttered from my lips again. And I cannot wait for that time. When you know where you're going, the journey is tolerable. And what does Paul teach us in 1 Corinthians 15? as to how we know where we're going. Because it says that Christ died for our sins, but there is a condition given. He says in verse 2, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you. What does it mean to hold fast? That's Paul's way of saying, if you take hold of this message, if you believe, if you trust. Does the devil know that Jesus died Yes, he does. Does the devil know God exists? Yes, he does. So when people tell me, well, I'm okay, I believe in God, or I, I know Jesus died, I go, so does the devil, but he's not going to heaven. What's the difference between you and him? It's not about knowing facts. It's about putting your personal trust in what Jesus did, not as just an objective fact, but as a subjective work for you. Jesus died for you. And you are to believe that gospel, that good news that is preached to you, that is offered. We see the same idea in the well-known verses, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, for by grace you have been saved. It is God's work, not mine. Through faith, not by faith, through faith. Faith is the instrument through which God's grace comes to me. 
You are, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one can boast. I'm called to trust that Jesus died for me, to reach out in repentance and faith and say, God, I have sinned and rebelled against you. I know that I've lived my life apart from your will for my life, and that you are good and holy, and I have not measured up to your standard. But I believe that you love me. I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross for me. And God, I'm not sorry enough to earn your love. I'm not good enough to earn your love. But I'm simply going to trust what your word says and believe that you love me. Father, forgive me for my sins. I repent and I turn my life over to you. That's how we become Christians. That's how the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, to make us new from the inside out. That's how we are given this promise of eternal life through Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. So know where you are going, but number two, how do we conquer the fear of death? Invest in what matters. Invest in what matters. Paul has spent 1 Corinthians 15 walking through the gospel. This argument that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, go home and do anything else with your life. And then this discussion that he has risen from the dead. And this guarantees a future resurrection for us. And then he says, in such a powerful way, verse 58... Therefore, now whenever you see therefore in scripture, what is he referring to? Everything he just said, right? Because Jesus is alive from the dead, and you one day will be too, therefore, my beloved brethren. He's coming alongside of you like a big brother, putting his arm around you, loving you, imploring you, encouraging you, pushing you forward. And he says, my beloved brethren, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. He says because Jesus has risen from the dead, you can do what God has called you to do with confidence, knowing that it matters. For those of you guys who are pastors in the room, man, there are some days you just look and go, you know, is anything I'm doing mattering? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing Bible study after Bible study. I'm doing business reports. I'm, you know, planning this and planning that. I'm preparing sermon after sermon. And, and it's like bouncing ping pong balls off a bronze statue sometimes. Just nobody's home. Is what I'm doing mattering? Does it matter? I'm being persecuted, whatever. Does it matter? And Paul's going, yeah, it matters because Jesus is alive. You're there in your relationship with your spouse and you're going, does it matter? I'm trying to be godly, but my spouse hates Jesus. Does it matter what I do? Yeah, it matters because Jesus rose from the dead and you will too. Man, my, my friends at school or my kids, I'm looking at this and I'm just going, as I'm investing in my kids or they're trying to take a stand at their school, does it matter? Yeah, it matters because Jesus rose from the dead and you will too. Because Jesus is alive, I know that investing in eternal things will matter. And I want to be clear, the only things that outlast my life 
are my relationship with God, my impact on others, and my personal character. Those are the only things that I will take with me. When I get to heaven, how I related to God in this life will matter in the next life. It will. The impact I made on other people will matter in the next life. And how I've grown in my Christ-likeness in this life matters in the next life. The only three things that matter and that will outlast my life are my relationship with God, my impact on others, and my personal character. I love what Paul Tripp has said. So often we live for what is already in a state of decay and ignore what remains forever. That new house that you had to have, the moment you step in, the foundations are already rotting. That new car that you got, it's already depreciating in value as soon as you take it off the lot. The thing that you had to have is already dying. That thing that you thought made you a somebody or that you just had to have in order to have joy, it's already breaking and dying. Uh, when we go to the state fair, you know, there's those, those vendors that have the really cheapy plastic toys and they come shoving them at your kids who then are shoving them in your face going, Daddy, Daddy, we want one. And you know it will be broken before you even get out of the park. The only things that last for eternity are my relationship with God, my impact on others, and my personal character. I used to say there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. I literally saw one on the road. Not even kidding. I literally saw, I have no idea what they were pulling in there, and I don't want to know, but I can't say that anymore. But you get the idea. We don't take stuff with us when we go. All we take with us are our relationship with God, our impact on others, and our personal character. I can spend my life investing in the things in this life which are temporary, or I can invest in the things to come. What kinds of things? When we invest in things that matter, we can look forward to what awaits. When we invest in things that matter, we can look forward to what awaits. If you're looking towards your retirement and you've not been putting anything aside, retirement doesn't sound like that great of a thing to you, does it? Why? Because you've not been, through whatever circumstances, you've not been able to or you have chosen not to invest towards that future. You're not looking forward to that. But if you've been faithful in putting away resources this whole time, retirement's like, yeah, I can't wait to get there because I'm ready for it. But the problem is we invest ourselves in things that don't last. No wonder we don't look forward to death. Our treasure is all here. Like what Al Mohler has said, not only do we not fear hell anymore in our churches, but we don't long for heaven. Why? Because what do I need heaven for? I've got a nice house. I've got two nice cars. I've got nice kids. I've got a great wife. I mean, I've got a good job. What, what do I need? I've got great health. What do I need heaven for? I have everything I need right here. No wonder I don't look forward to heaven, and yet... In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we're told, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, each one to be recompensed for his deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. I may feel self-sufficient, but one day I will stand before the Lord and give an account of my life. And the way I live my life now determines my anticipation of that experience, just like an athlete who has to own up to the coach after his performance. Now, I mentioned, you know, Pastor Josh was into basketball. I was into wrestling. Well, I was on the wrestling team. I, I, I recognize gym ceilings all over central Iowa. Okay? 
I'm like, hey, I've seen that ceiling before. I, uh, my, last, my last match, my sophomore year, so I was on JV my entire sophomore year. Um, I, I, I love lifting, and I love strength, and I love that. I just could not get the technicalities of the moves. And it doesn't help when you are a think-out-loud person. And the coach pulls you aside and goes, Dry, what are you, I noticed your mouth out there moving. What are you doing? And I realize that I'm walking through the move out loud as I'm doing it. And then my opponent's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Don't do that. My last match, I was wrestling JV the entire season, and uh, I had lost about 20 pounds that season, went from 171 down to 152. And uh, that night, our varsity 171 guy was sick. So I came to the coach. This is my moment. Can I wrestle varsity tonight? Can I fill in? And he looked at me like, what's wrong with you? You're going to die. And I'm like, coach, it's the last match. Please. And he goes, fine. And I got to suit up varsity. I got the little the warm-up jumpsuits, right? And uh, so the lights are down, and I get to run out onto the mat, and we're, you know, pulling a NASCAR thing, going circles, circles, circles. And... Um, it comes up to the guy before me is wrestling, and I'm just, I'm so excited, but I've never worn these jumpsuits before, and I don't realize that when you tape your shoes, you're supposed to tape them before you put the jumpsuit pants on, because otherwise you tape your pants to your shoes, and then they don't come off, and so it's getting to be my time, and I'm trying to pull my pants off to get out there. And it's not working, so finally, they're like, everybody's looking at me now, and they, they push me down into the chair, rip it off, and I go, and that's how I start my match. But that's not the whole story. Because the whole story is, then when I'm going onto the mat, I tripped, walking on, and it wasn't quite a face plant, but it was like as close to a face plant as you can get without technically being a face plant. And so we started, and I lasted a minute. And I was so excited. I had him in a headlock, but I overextended myself, and he flipped me. And just boom. And by the way, he was the number two guy in the state that year. So I lasted a minute. So I don't even care. I wrestled varsity, and I lasted a minute. <laughs> and afterwards, I came to my coach. His name was Lim Prim. He was this, he was, uh, uh, about this tall. And, I mean, he had legs for arms. And I walk up to him, and he just goes, Good job, Jariah. Sit down. <laughs> I didn't care. Like, I wrestled varsity. <laughs> but, you know, every time you wrestle, you have to stand before the coach after, and he either goes, well done, or he does, what were you doing out there? Like, I don't even know what you call that, but it's not anything we went over in practice. But my performance didn't determine my relationship with the coach, but it determined how excited I was to go see him, right? And so when I live my life for me, investing in things that don't matter, when I go to stand before the Lord, I'm going to have nothing. No wonder I'm not excited about heaven. But when I'm investing my life in things that matter, when I stand before Christ, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's interesting, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, uh, by the will of God, to the saints 
who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Paul says you are a saint. You are a set-apart one. We want to be faithful. That's our mission. We are saints. We want to be faithful. And when I live my life pleasing God with everything I have in pursuing him, I can look forward to standing before him someday. So here's my question as we finish my time with you for the morning and for the week. What could God do in your life if the fear of death wasn't holding you back? What I hear, so especially in, in missions, you know, is people going, well, if I go there, I could die. Yeah, how'd that work out for Paul? He did. And he still said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You may be here and maybe you have things going on in your health that nobody even knows about. And maybe you are fighting something that could kill you. And you're, and you're freaking out about it. Well, let me ask you, do you know where you're going? Because 1 John 5.13 says you can know that you have eternal life. And if you don't have that assurance, please come talk to me. Because I would love to show you from God's word how you can know where you are going. But maybe you've been living your life investing for all these things. You've been investing in, in, in what people think of you. You've been investing in your reputation. You've been investing in toys. And you're really worried that when it's all said and done, you're going to have nothing to show for it. I'd love to show you from God's word how you can begin to invest in what matters so that you can look forward to eternity. Thank you again this week for your time. Thank you for listening and your encouragement. I hope that this week has been helpful to you. And I look forward to seeing how God is going to use these things in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together.